0: have often talked about the first black woman millionaire, Madam C.J. Walker. However, I've never talked about this next person who is believed to be the first person of African descent to become a millionaire, a man. And his name is William Alexander Leidersdorf. And he was born in the Virgin Islands, the Danish part of the West Indies which we now refer to as the US Virgin Islands and a town called Christiansted, which is associated with St. Croix today. And his mother was an African descent woman of mixed background, ethnic background. She may have been African and Cuban, she may have been Creole or some other kind of combination. And her name was Anna Marie Spark. And his father was Alexander Leidersdorf, and he was a Jewish Danish sailor and a merchant and sugar planter. And his mother had been enslaved at one time, and eventually she got her freedom. As the story goes, his father wasn't really active in his life in raising him or being a part of it on a day to day basis. However, there was an English Who was a plantation owner who saw something in Leitersdorf and he took to him, educated him, and taught him the business that he was in, which was sailing, being a captain of ships. And he also taught him the cotton planting business through his brother. So, what happened is that Leitersdorf ended up moving from the Virgin Islands to New Orleans. And he moved to New Orleans because his benefactor, the English plantation owner, had a brother there, and that brother was in the cotton planting business. And as he learned the business from these two Englishmen, ultimately and eventually those two died and he inherited their fortune. He had learned all the skills and became white a seaman and a business person in new orleans now all this time he was living as a white man and this was kind of interesting it Was is in the 1840s that all of this was going on and his englishman benefactors told him do not ever say that your mother is a black woman and so he's In new orleans living as a white man and he meets this woman her name is hortense and she comes from a very prominent white family in the area they are engaged and they plan to get married and he decides that he had better tell her about his history and his parentage so he has a conversation with hortense one day and he lets her know that his mother is actually a woman of african descent and hortense is of course shocked and she says to him i will always love you you are the love of my life however i cannot marry you my father will not allow me to marry you i must tell my father about this situation and you have to leave the house at once because she knew he would be in great danger if her father found out all of this information and maybe he would even be killed Hortense's father was a prominent slaveholder in New Orleans, and so this would certainly not be news he'd want to hear concerning his daughter. The wedding was called off, he left the house, and the next day, Hortense's father returned the engagement ring, sent it over to his home, returned it to him, so he knew, of course, there was just no future whatsoever. He decided that it would be best to sell everything that he had at that point and to buy a ship. It was a 106-ton schooner that he named the the Julia Ann, and he was going to leave New Orleans, which was probably a wise thing to do, and especially at that time, I'm sure his life would still have been in danger. However, prior to his departure and before he left, He saw a funeral procession going down the street and he recognized members of Hortense's family. And as it turned out, it was Hortense's funeral that he was observing. It's not clear how she died, if she just died of natural causes, if she took her life or if her family actually killed her. Who knows? But she had died and the funeral procession is going down the street. A priest also comes to him and gives him a small gold cross, and he recognizes that this is a cross of Hortense, and the priest tells him that she wanted him to have that, and so that was a gift from her before she died. Around about the time of 1841, he left New Orleans. Ultimately, he sailed to California, which at the time was a Mexican territory, and he moved to an area that was called the Yerba Buena Cove at the time which was at that time this part of California which we now know as San Francisco was not built up at all and it was an outpost at best however he saw possibility there he saw what was potential in this area and region and knew that he could build it up. And he became an import-export person, and he traveled with his ship to places like Hawaii and trading goods back and forth between California and Hawaii. And he had decided once he left New Orleans that he was no longer going to live as a white person. So he acknowledged when he got to California and lived the rest of his life as a person of mixed race, and that's how he referred to himself. And in his shipping business, he was shipping things like animal pelts and tallow for, for candles. And he was going also to Alaska in addition to Hawaii. He was such a businessman that in California, in the San Francisco area, he opened a general store, a warehouse, a lumber yard, a shipbuilding business, and he built San Francisco's first hotel, which he named the City Hotel. He also built the first steamboat, although it did run into difficulty after its first voyage and it sank. And since the territory was a Mexican territory where he was located, he was granted citizenship by Mexico. And one of the things I should mention is with his father being Danish, he also had Danish citizenship. So here was a man who had Danish citizenship he also had now Mexican citizenship, and he also belonged to the United States, the Americas at the time. So he was holding three different citizenships at once, and he spoke five languages, one of which was Spanish, which made it easy for him to live in California at the time. As part of the deal of becoming a Mexican citizen, he was given 35,000 acres of undeveloped land in the San Francisco area, and he named it Rio de los Americanos. And it was a ranch, and it was right on the American River, which is where he was located. He built a huge mansion on that land, and he referred to it as a cottage, even though it was a huge mansion. And that house and home had the state's only flower garden. And the home was built in a New Orleans kind of style with a large wraparound porch. And he became, in essence, the de facto U.S. embassy in the California territory. When any dignitaries would come to California, whether Mexican or American, he would be a gracious host. And so many people came to his home and stayed there in 1846 there was a war between the u.s and mexico because now the united states was expanding its territory and when that conflict broke out he allied himself with the united states side and his home again became an important place a meeting place and a place to gather information and intelligence he became the u.s vice council to mexico and over the time that he lived in california he held a number of civic positions of great honor and trust he was a diplomat he was a businessman he was a great host he was into all kinds of activities he became the treasurer even of the territory and was part of the town council In addition to all the other things he built he also built the first public school in the region and he also built a horse racing track there as well later on and this was before the gold rush hit california however later on on his property a large amount of gold was also discovered which really increased the value of his property and his home to close to two million dollars, which was a lot of money, certainly at that time, as it's even a significant amount today. Eventually, at a pretty young age, he was only 38 years old, when one day he went to bed in the home and didn't wake up because in the morning he was pronounced dead of brain fever as it was called some people say typhus maybe he had meningitis who knows he had something that affected his brain and he was dead at 38. now the problem with that is that he died without a will and this was going to end up being problematic turn of events and being the most prominent citizen in California his death was deeply mourned by everyone who was there He was buried in the Mission Church, right behind the Mission Church, when he died. And his obituary was in the local newspaper, the California Star. And flags all hung at half-mast when he died. Now, you can imagine owning such prime property at such great acreage in California. And without a will, someone was going to take advantage of this. So a man named Joseph Folsom, who was a real estate investor decided that he would find a way to get this property and to get this land. And Folsom had been a U.S. Army captain in his lifetime. So he went to the Virgin Islands to search for Leidensdorf's relatives. And he did find his mother, Anna Marie Sparks, and her other children living there in the Virgin Islands. She was his sole heir because Leidesdorf never married after the failed engagement and he never had any children. So Folsom cooked up a deal where he had the mother sell the property to him for $75,000. Now, in reality, the property was worth close to $2 million at the time. And when she discovered, in essence, that she had been swindled out of this property, she did try to right that wrong legally. However, she was never able to recover the property or to be paid the proper amount. So in essence, Folsom ended up swindling the family out of this great property in San Francisco. And you will, if you go to San Francisco, you will see Folsom's name on everything. However, Leidesdorf's name is essentially on two blocks in San Francisco in an area that's really known more as an alley so this was a huge land theft that he managed to get away with and his family and his descendants benefited from Leidersdorf's property rather than Leidersdorf's family and Folsom himself also ended up dying early at 38 years old so he didn't personally get to enjoy it for a huge amount of time because of that and i mentioned this story in lots of ways because we see that number one i would say that god gifts all people that he creates and he sends them here with multiple talents and leidestorf had intellectual talents and also many other talents and that number two with the proper education the proper contacts and opportunities anyone really can succeed with the gifts and talents that God has given them. And he had those connections, contacts, and opportunities in large measure because of his mixed-race background and the generosity of the Englishman who was the plantation owner. And the third thing I would say is that, and even with the gifts, the talents, and even with access that he had, there were still systems of oppression, and disenfranchisement in place that prevented him from living out the full life that he could have lived with a wife and children he ended up not having that so these systems of oppression and disenfranchisement curtailed certain aspects of his success and his ability to transfer his legacy to the next generations because he had nieces and nephews that could have benefited from his property and from his legacy I also want to point out that many of these same problems exist today and we just don't hear about it often enough and recently of course in recent time news we know of the bruce family and bruce Beach in california and how many years ago their family's property was also stolen from them and they recently got the property back they were paid properly for it and then they were able to sell it back to the state as well so these are not isolated incidents is what i'm saying it happens frequently a lot and some variations modern day versions of these disenfranchisements also take place today. So I want to read something as we close our time together, and it's from Acts, the 17th chapter, and it starts with verse 24. The Apostle Paul is really speaking, and he's talking about what God has done with all of us, and he says, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. And he was speaking to the Greeks at the time, who were worshiping an unknown god and what i will draw your attention to is paul is acknowledging that god created us out of one background we all emanate if you will from adam and eve and so these false dichotomies and barriers that we've put in place the ethnic and racial divides That's something that man created, not anything that God created. God created us as diverse as the flowers, and he sees beauty in all of us and gives talent to all of us, and we are the ones who disenfranchise one another by how we choose to live here on the earth. And so I would say that we want to remember that we are all the offspring of God And he made us, as the scripture says, from one blood, every nation of men, that we might dwell on the face of the earth. So my prayer as we go forward is that we would eventually and finally learn to dwell in love and unity together, not disenfranchising one another on the earth. leadership resources.